0: Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio. A 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again. And Elizabeth Shoff from Lugoff, South Carolina. Who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods? And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists. So go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we we're, were blessed. 5. Unsolved Murder Mysteries Death comes to us all, but sometimes there are people taken prematurely at the hands of another. The next five cases echo just that, and the people involved died under very strange circumstances. These are 5 Unsolved Murder Mysteries. Number 5. Atlas Vampire Known as one of Sweden's most well-chronicled murder mysteries, the Atlas vampire has baffled people for many years. Atlas is a small neighborhood in Sweden. Back in the 1930s, it was dotted with various apartment complexes that had small rooms. In one of the apartments lived a 32-year-old sex worker named Lily Lindstrom. She was known as the Call Girl by her neighbors not because of her profession, but simply because she was the only one who had a phone line. See, Minnie was in the same profession and lived directly below her, so the two became friends. Several days later, though, Minnie began to grow worried when she hadn't seen her co-worker in a while. Concerned, she called authorities and asked them to do a welfare check, and when they did, what they found shocked them. When police entered the apartment, they found Lily lying face down on the bed, completely naked with her clothes neatly placed on a chair by her side. She had died from receiving multiple blows to the head with some sort of blunt object and appeared she was killed two to three days prior. A used condom was found on her backside, and the most unnerving discovery of all was that while the room was relatively clean, nearly all of Lily's blood had been drained from her body. They couldn't find an obvious explanation for this. One clue did lead to a chilling conclusion, though, as police found a blood-soaked ladle in the room. They then realized it was likely the killer had used the spoon to drink her blood. Police rounded up Lily's usual clients, but no one was named as a suspect. Moreover, no one had seen her last client come and go in the days right around her death. Despite the countless DNA evidence left in the room during the time, there was no way to test that out. Since this was the only murder in the area around that time, it doesn't appear to be the work of a serial killer. The methodical and sadistic nature would also make it seem like it wasn't a crime of passion. All this makes the murder all that more intriguing, because you would have to wonder who would do such a brutal thing. Today, the case is still technically open, and the Swedish Police Museum have placed some evidence of the case on display for anyone interested in reviewing the case themselves. Number 4. The Frankfurt Slasher From 1985 to 1990, Frankfurt, Philadelphia was haunted by a serial killer. Dubbed the Frankfurt Slasher, this murderer would go on to kill and sexually assault eight women during his five-year crime spree. Helen Patton was a 55-year-old who lived in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and she was the first victims whose body was discovered on August 19, 1985. She had been dead for a week and was naked from the waist down with her shirt pulled up above her chest. It was clear she had been sexually assaulted prior to being stabbed 47 times. Police didn't have any leads, but then after five months, the killer struck again. On January 3, 1986, 68-year-old Anna Carroll was found dead inside her own home. She was also discovered naked from the waist down with a kitchen knife still stuck in her torso. The killer went quiet for almost an entire year, but then on Christmas Day of 1986, they killed 64-year-old Susan Olsef inside her home. The one thing that connected them all was that these women were known regulars at a place called the Golden Bar. The following year, but just weeks after Suzanne's body was found, Jean Durkin, who was 28, was found dead very close to Goldie's bar. Jean was a stripper, but was homeless and often slept on a street close to the bar. She was found murdered, sexually assaulted, and stabbed 74 times. Her body was then left under a lorry with an overcoat covering her. By November 11, 1988, another woman, Margaret Vaughn, who was 66, was found stabbed in an apartment building on Penn Street, and she's believed to be another victim of the slasher. The community was shaken to its core and on high alert, but the killer didn't show any signs of stopping. Teresa Schiartini, who was 30, was found completely butchered inside her home on January 19, 1989. Eyewitnesses said both Vaughn and Sciortino were seen with a middle-aged white man before they were killed, and although a composite sketch was created, no arrests were ever made. Another murder attributed to the Frankfurt slasher was that of 46-year-old Carol Down. She had a history of mental problems and was found stabbed more than 12 times, with her left nipple having been removed as well. Her body was left behind Newman's Seafood, so the following day police questioned Leonard Christopher, an employee at the store. Other prostitutes had told police they had saw Leonard near the crime scene with a large utility knife on his belt the evening of the crime. Soon after that he was arrested despite the fact that prior witnesses described the slasher as a white man and Christopher was black. There was little evidence against him aside from the eyewitness testimony, but nevertheless He was convicted for the murder of Carol and sentenced to life in prison. So with Christopher in jail, many thought that the Frankfurt Slasher was gone for good, but another crime would happen that bore the marks of this sadistic serial killer. On September 6, 1990, Michelle Denner was found murdered inside her apartment. No signs of forced entry were seen, just like the other victims, and Michelle had been stabbed 23 times in the chest and stomach. She was a unique case because she was acquainted with one of the previous victims, Jean Durkin. In fact, the night before Durkin was discovered dead, Michelle was seen arguing with her over a blanket. This actually led police to initially consider Michelle as a suspect, but soon dropped it, seeing that there was no evidence to convict her. Investigators believe that since the two frequented the same bar and area, They both may have come across the slasher and somehow became victims of his vicious killing spree. Who the killer was or is, however, still remains a mystery. Number 3. Ricky McCormick When police found Ricky McCormick's body, it was so badly decomposed that his fingers had fallen off. Despite being missing for only three days, his body was in such bad condition that it was tough for police to even find out who the man was. He was found wearing blue jeans and a white shirt. His lifeless body had been left at a notorious dumping ground in the rural cornfields of St. Charles County, just 20 minutes from downtown St. Louis. After conducting an autopsy, the coroner ruled his death undetermined with suspicion of foul play. There were no stab or bullet wounds to indicate he had died that way, and even if there was a possible head wound, it was hard to determine because of the advanced decomposition. Despite the ruling of suspicious death, however, there was very little to go on. With no clues on his body, they collected information and leads from Ricky's family, friends, and girlfriends. Ricky was a high school dropout who had lived in the Illinois and Missouri area, bouncing around from one address to another most of his life. He would often mooch off his mother, and it was obvious their relationship was strained since his mother labeled him retarded, citing he likely suffered from some form of mental illness that went undiagnosed. He wasn't married either, but had fathered four children, the first two with a then 11-year-old girl nicknamed Pretty Baby. For that, he served 13 months out of a three-year prison sentence for statutory rape. At the time of his death, he was 41 years old and suspected to be involved with drug activity. Despite finding out more about his life, police were stumped and no leads panned out. From the public eye, Ricky's case went cold and nothing came out of the investigation. It wasn't until 12 years later when his case would capture the public's attention once again. When investigators couldn't find anything else to go on, they turned to the one thing Ricky left behind upon his death. His jeans and shirt. Detectives found two crumpled pieces of paper in his jeans pockets with random scribbles of letters and numbers. They turned this over to the FBI. However, after holding on to the cryptic papers and its contents for 12 years, they couldn't figure out what the coded message was, so they turned to the public for help. The crumpled papers contained an unknown code consisting of letters and numbers, some of them occasionally enclosed in parentheses. Internet sleuths and amateur code breakers tried their hand at cracking this code, but to no avail. Without results, most people insinuated the code was unbreakable because it wasn't a code in the first place. After all, Ricky was barely literate and probably suffered from mental problems. However, the FBI seems to think otherwise. They point to the series of repeating letters citing there is something there but it's most likely a personal message and not something meant for public consumption. Perhaps it's some sort of drug dealer-related code for pickup and drop-offs. Or it could be something relating to his death. Regardless, today the code remains unbroken. It's become among the top three coded messages that have stumped the FBI, including one letter from the infamous Zodiac Killer in 1969 and an anonymous secret letter written to an unstated public agency. Number 2. The Dupont de Lejons Family. In the spring of 2011, after several days had passed, neighbors of the Dupont de Legendre's family began to notice that the house seemed unusually quiet. They were a household of six, and Xavier was the head of the family. He was born in France in 1961 and had a privileged upbringing in a strict Catholic household. He was described as courteous and discreet by neighbors and those who knew him, and while it's unclear what type of employment he was actually in, it's thought he worked as an advertising salesman and also ran some companies with limited success. His wife Agnes, also a devout Catholic, taught catechism and regularly attended mass with their children. Their oldest son, Arthur, was 20 years old and worked as a waiter while studying I.T., Their three other children were 18-year-old Thomas, who was a gifted musician, 16-year-old Anne, and 13-year-old Benoit, who were both still in school. After concerned neighbors and friends phoned police about failing to make any contact with any members of the family, investigators headed out to the property. There, they discovered that the two family Labrador retrievers had recently been killed and buried, each one having received a gunshot wound to the head. After that, some more digging was done, and under the patio is where they found several human remains. Every single family member had been killed and buried in a shallow grave, except for Xavier, who was missing and unaccounted for. During the autopsy, it was discovered the victims were drugged prior to being shot to death with a twenty-two caliber pistol that Xavier had inherited from his father. Looking back, prior to the discovery of the bodies, the family performed a number of suspicious actions. This included terminating the lease on their home, closing all bank accounts, settling the children's school payments, tacking a return all-mail to sender note on the mailbox, and the home being completely emptied. Aside from the school officials receiving abrupt notice, Agnes's employer was also informed she had gastrointestinal and the family was moving to Australia. Two of the three cars the family owned were also missing from the property. One was later found abandoned at a hotel, which police believe Xavier had used and abandoned. The other one, a Pontiac, has never been found. Days prior to their deaths, the family had been seen several times, and their individual friends and acquaintances didn't notice anything unusual. However, Xavier's actions were deemed more suspicious by authorities. He was seen buying four bags of lime from a host of different shops around town. His subsequent disappearance only made him more suspicious, and as of the moment, an international warrant of arrest is out for him as both a primary witness and suspect. Hundreds of tips and false leads have been received by police as to his whereabouts, but none have panned out. In July of 2015, a French journalist received a photograph Of two of the Dupont de Ligion's children, Arthur and Benoit, on the back of the picture was a handwritten note saying, I'm still alive. It's unknown who sent the image and where it was taken. The following year, a CCTV image of a man who looked very much like Xavier was spotted in a casino. His sister still believes that the family never actually died. The autopsy was rushed and the bodies were cremated just days afterwards. Family members were also encouraged not to view the bodies, and so she says that the family had indeed gone into hiding, and that their deaths, including the bodies recovered in the home, if indeed there were any, were not of the family at all. Currently, this case remains open. Number 1. Keith Warren It was already dusk six hours after authorities found Keith Warren's body hanging from a tree in the back of a townhouse when his mother and family were informed of his death. The police had deemed it a suicide by hanging. No autopsy was done and his body was quickly brought to a funeral home for embalming. For Keith's relatives, there was nothing but shock and grief. The 19-year-old was a promising student and by all accounts had a bright future ahead of him. He had just been accepted to North Carolina Central University and was to start during the fall, but instead, his body was found in July of 1986. His mother, Mary, initially accepted the verdict, but soon afterwards, there were just too many things that didn't add up to support the claim. For one, a friend of Keith's named Rodney Kendall told her that suspicious individuals had approached him looking for Keith prior to his death. These were a group of black males that he didn't know and believe Keith didn't know either. In another instance, Rodney ran into Mark Finley, Keith's high school friend, and he relates that Finley seemed to be urgently looking for Keith. Several weeks after the boy's death, Mary decided to ask Rodney to lead her to where they found Keith's body. To her surprise, the tree where he was found was cut down. She later found out that it was the police that took it down and brought it in as evidence despite the fact that they listed the cause of death to be a suicide. Realizing that something was amiss, she launched a letter-writing campaign seeking help from state and federal officials, but to no avail. It wasn't until April of 1992, on what would be Keith's 25th birthday, when she went out to the porch and found a plain manila envelope sitting there. Inside were five photographs of Keith's body hanging from the tree. She forced herself to look them over and noticed that he was wearing clothes far too big for him, and most telling, he was wearing white sneakers. The clothing returned to her were Keith's jacket and brown boots, which police said were found close to his body, although they weren't shown in the photos. Now completely untrusting of the police, Mary hired a private investigator who discovered the pictures were indeed copies of official crime scene photos taken by the police, but they had no idea who sent them to Mary. The P.I. also noted that Keith's shirt had leaves stuck to it, suggesting he was lying down on the ground before being hoisted up. Obviously, not something one could do if they were committing suicide. This also backed up the complicated path the rope had taken, because the tree from where his body was found was small and not enough to hold his weight, so the rope's end was actually tied to a much larger tree. Keith's body was then exhumed, at the insistence of the family. They hired a private pathologist to examine it and discovered that his body contained lethal amounts of toxic chemicals often found in solvents and glue. According to the pathologist, these levels inside his body would have rendered him dead, thus having the possibility of suicide completely ruled out. Regardless of the findings, there are still no concrete answers as to who or why Keith Warren was killed. The one person who possibly knew something, Keith's friend Mark, would soon take that secret to his grave. When Mary received the photographs, there was a little note inside that said don't worry, Mark Finley will be next. Two months later, Mark called Mary and said he missed Keith and that he would drop by because he needed to unload. But unfortunately, soon after, he died. Mark had struck a curb and was thrown from his bike. And while this could possibly be an accident, it still doesn't explain why anyone would threaten him, and so we don't know what kind of information he had about Keith's death. The case itself is officially closed, but still, nagging questions continue to haunt the family and those who know of the case. So there were five unsolved murder mysteries. Sometimes people are taken from this life all too soon, which is hard to deal with. When we don't know who took them or why, it becomes utterly unbearable for those closest to them. If you like this video, then please hit the notification bell so that every week you'll know when we post a new video for you to check out. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next week. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance.